Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Before we jump into today's text, let's reset the scene for a moment. Jesus is ministering in the region of Galilee. This is important to remember where Jesus is. He's in the region of Galilee. And as we look at our map, our trusty map here, we got Judea, the region of Judea to the south with the city of Jerusalem, noted by the red arrow. We've got the region of Samaria in the middle, and then far to the north, the region of Galilee, and then the other red arrow up to the north, pointing at the city of Capernaum. And Capernaum ended up being Jesus' headquarters during his ministry in Galilee. And just for reference, Capernaum is about 120 miles to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem. And so it gives you a little bit of a reference point. So they're not right next to each other. That's a decent distance, especially in a day when you didn't have modern transportation. Well, things got very intense for Jesus at the end of last week's sermon, resulting in the fact that Jesus is now a wanted man. First of all, he was wanted by the religious authorities for crucifixion. He was wanted by the religious authorities for crucifixion. Why? Well, because Jesus proclaimed himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, which was equivalent to saying that he was God. And in the view of the Pharisees, that's blasphemy, a sin deserving of death, which is why we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The wheels of crucifixion are in motion. However, the religious authorities were not the only ones who wanted Jesus. He was also wanted by the general population for healing. As much as the religious leaders were repulsed by Jesus, the masses were attracted to him for all that he was doing for them. The lame were walking, the blind were seeing, he was feeding them bread, and so in that sense also, Jesus is a wanted man, and that sets the scene for us today. Would you please stand with me as I read the text, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Ty- around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, (laughs) yeah, you try saying it, okay, Um, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let us pray together. Father, please open our hearts and our minds to your voice this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that in this um, world which is so shifting and changing and so uncertain, we have the solid rock of your word to stand on. And so speak to us through it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today's passage confronts us with a very penetrating question, and the question is this, are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Because both fans and followers are represented in the text. First, we'll see fans of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. And then we will see followers of Jesus in verses 13 through 19. Now, I want to say up front that um, this verbiage, fan and follower, and some themes this morning come from a book by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. And it's subtitled, Becoming a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. And so I might encourage you to to check out that book in the the days to come. But let's look first of all at the fans of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. Now when I say fan, I'm not referring to one of these, okay? That's not what we're talking about. I'm referring to one of these. Which is very appropriate as we're in March Madness season right now with college basketball. There's a lot of talk about fandom and um, also something about fans. They, they have stuff like this. I know nothing about what you see here. This is not something I would be familiar with. Um, but in short, a fan is an enthusiastic admirer. A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. And in that book that I mentioned... Kyle Eidelman, he fleshes this out by saying, it's the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt and a painted chest. He sits in the stands and cheers for his team. He's got a signed jersey hanging on his wall at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car. But he's never in the game. And he never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit on the open field. He knows all about the players and can rattle off their latest stats, but he doesn't know the players. He yells and cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There is no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if the team he's cheering for starts to let him down, Lions fans, (laughs) and has a few off-seasons, his passion will wane pretty quickly. After several losing seasons, you can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and begin cheering for some other team. He is an enthusiastic admirer. And in our text today, Jesus had lots of enthusiastic admirers in verses 7 through 12. Look at me, with me at verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And this is one of 11 occasions noted by Mark in which Jesus withdraws for a time. And I think that's important. That's a key theme in Mark's gospel. There's seasons of intensity and there are seasons of withdrawing. The question is, why did Jesus withdraw here? Was he scared? 
Was he afraid for his life, knowing that it was on the line, that he was being hunted down? Not at all. Jesus isn't afraid of dying. Rather, Jesus withdraws because his time had not yet come. There was still a lot of work to do here on earth. And so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, seeking some peace and some quiet, but it didn't turn out that way. We continue reading with verse 7. The second part of it says, And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So we see a double emphasis here of great crowd emphasizing the magnitude of this gathering of people. We're not just talking about thousands. We are likely talking tens of thousands of people. And the fact of the matter is, especially when that crowd is desperate, it can in fact be very dangerous. Some of you are old enough to remember a tragedy that happened um, Boy, it's hard to believe that it was December 3rd, 1979 in Cincinnati, Ohio. The band The Who was to play a concert at Riverfront Coliseum. And when the doors were opened, there was a stampede of people attempting to claim non-reserved seats. They were desperate. They wanted something terribly. And 11 people were trampled to death and 26 people were injured, reminding us of the fact that great desperate crowds can be very Dangerous, And that's exactly what Jesus was facing. He was facing great crowds from far and wide. Let's look at a map again. Um, it's, it's really staggering when you think about what it's telling us here in verse 7. We could easily skip over that, but when we see it visually, it, it really gets our attention. Okay, so the blue circle is roughly where Jesus is ministering at this time. Um, but then it mentions all of these different areas. First of all, in verse 7, it says Galilee. We saw that earlier. That's nearby where he is. But then to the south, Judea. And then this place called Idumea to the south, even further south than Jerusalem and Judea. And then it says from beyond the Jordan. So east of the Jordan. So I've circled Decapolis and Perea. And then also way to the north, we've got the cities of Tyre and Sidon, it tells us. And so this is a vast area telling us that Jesus' reputation has, has traveled far and wide. First of all, to hardcore Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, but then all the way to hardcore Gentile pagans in Tyre and Sidon. And then everyone in between. Jesus' reputation had spread beyond traditional Jewish territory. And what this tells us, this, these great crowds were composed of people who had come from a long, long way to see Jesus. Jesus had gone viral without social media. Imagine the jealous rage of the Pharisees over this. They wanted to kill him, but the crowds can't get enough of him. Well, how exactly did Jesus go viral? I think this is instructive for us today as we read the second half of verse 8. It says, when the great crowd heard, they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They heard, which means they were talking. People were sharing the news. They were telling their neighbors. People heard about the lame walking, the blind seeing, and the hungry being fed, and they wanted in on the action. And I don't think it's wrong to say at this point, in context, as we'll see in a moment, the crowds were more interested in the gifts than the giver of the gifts. 
The crowds were more interested in the gifts than the giver of the gifts. They were, they were attracted to Jesus more because of his miracles than his message. Their devotion did not go beyond what Jesus could do for them, meaning they were merely fans, enthusiastic admirers. This dynamic is fleshed out a little bit more in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they were so happy. They were hungry. Jesus fed them physically. But then Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And you know what happened after that? Well, what we read is, in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They proved to be fans rather than followers. They wanted the bread more than the bread of life. They were interested in the miracles, but not the message. And such is the case here in Mark chapter 3. Well, how did Jesus deal with these great crowds? Um, Verse 9 goes on to say, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Jesus recognizes he's going to need some protection from the crowd, lest they crush him or trample him. But how do you keep tens of thousands of people from pushing and trampling and touching? Well, You get a boat, and you use the water as a natural buffer between you and the crowd, which would enable Jesus to fulfill his primary mission, which was to preach the gospel, the message. Jesus wanted to preach. And when he did, we see the same thing that happened in the synagogue. Look at verse 11. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And again, we see tragic irony here. The demons know who Jesus is, but Jesus' own people, the Jews, they don't recognize who Jesus is, even though they have been given literally hundreds of prophecies that point directly to him. Their spiritual eyes were blind. They were covered by a veil. They can't see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, the section dealing with the fans of Jesus ends in verse 12 where it says, and he strictly ordered them, the demons, not to make him known. We talked about this before, but why would Jesus not want his name to be made known. Isn't isn't that what we're supposed to do is make Jesus known? Well, two reasons Jesus didn't want the demons testifying on his behalf. Number one, demons are lying spirits, right? Not to be trusted. And so their testimony isn't worth anything to begin with. And then number two, Jesus didn't want to be associated with them. That's not the kind of publicity Jesus was looking for. Because just two paragraphs after this, Jesus will actually be accused of being possessed by a demon, guilty by association. And so he strictly ordered them, the demons, not to make him known. That's not the testimony that Jesus desired. And so um, we are confronted with this question this morning as we've looked at this first section. Are you a fan or are you a follower of Jesus? 
a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus. We've looked at the fans of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. Let's go on to look at the followers in verses 13 through 19. The section of our text begins in verse 13, and he went up on a mountain. He went up on the mountain. This was, in fact, as we have seen, the common practice of Jesus whenever he faced something big. Something big's coming, got to go up on the mountain. An impending big event or big decision, Jesus needed to get away from everyone and everything and be alone with his Father to receive guidance and to receive empowerment. And it's interesting, Luke's account of this very story, he gives a little bit more detail and he says that Jesus prayed all night while he was on this mountain. And again, we're confronted with this important question. If Jesus was so dependent upon the Father, how much more are we? If Jesus needed this time alone with the Father, how much more do we? How much more do we need to get to the mountain, away from everyone and everything, and receive divine direction and empowerment? Because Jesus, I believe, here illustrates the life principle that private victories precede public victories. Private victories precede public victories. I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that the public victory of the cross was won long before the nails were being driven into the hands and feet of Jesus. Rather, the public victory of the cross was won in private when? When did Jesus win that victory in private? Gethsemane. When he sweat drops of blood in prayer, surrendering himself to the will of the Father, that's when the public victory was really won. It was won in private, and so it is with us. Well, what was so big that Jesus felt the desperate need to go up on the mountain and pray all night? Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve. I love that. He appointed 12. Jesus is picking his team, those who would go with him on mission. And he chose 12 for a very specific reason. He chose 12 apostles because they correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in one sense, this indicates a continuity with the Jews. There is continuity here, 12 in the old, 12 in the new. A continuing thread tying them together, reminding us that God is the author of it all, one big picture, one big story, and also that God is not finished with the Jews. And we Gentile believers, we need to be reminded of this. Sometimes we get a little full of ourselves, and we can even look with disdain upon the Jews and their lack of understanding and say, But look at Romans chapter 11, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, that means us, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the roots, but the root that supports you. 
We Gentiles are merely grafted into this Jewish olive tree. We are nourished and supported by its roots. And while, as we briefly discussed last week, we are not called to become Jews, we are in fact Gentiles, we must have a love and compassion and care for the Jews. We must not underestimate God's great love and continuing purpose for these His chosen people. And so the choosing of 12 apostles speaks of continuity with the Jews, the Old Testament people of Israel, but it also speaks of condemnation of their religious leaders and unbelief. It also speaks of condemnation of their religious leaders and unbelief. Jesus intentionally, he went out of his way not to choose Jewish priests, scribes, or Pharisees from Jerusalem for his team. This was meant to be a direct rebuke against their religiosity and their hypocrisy. No, Jesus would turn his attention elsewhere to fill out his roster in an unexpected place. In fact, his selections might cause us to scratch our heads and wonder, does Jesus really know what he's doing? Again, skip ahead to verse 16. We've got this this catalog of men that as we learn more about them, we wonder why would Jesus choose them? He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, you say it, um, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So, So who were these guys anyway? Most all of them were from Galilee, And again, we have an understanding from our map. They're not from Judea. They're not from Jerusalem. In fact, it's likely that, check this out. This is interesting. Only Judas Iscariot was likely from the region of Judea. As many as seven of them were fishermen, meaning that while they were not stupid, okay, they weren't dumb guys, they they were largely uneducated. Now, one of the most interesting dynamics on this team, I think, is between Matthew, the tax collector, who was viewed as a sellout to the Romans, and uh, this guy, Simon the Zealot, who was a Jewish revolutionary who wanted to fight against and overthrow the Romans. So you've got the sellout and the revolutionary on the same team. How do you think that works? I think what it does is powerfully illustrate for us how Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but he reconciles us to each other. He himself is our peace. And what a, what a diverse group of people Jesus chose here. In general, I think we can agree, these are incredibly ordinary men, people much like you and me. But what exactly was Jesus calling them to do? Back to verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also called apostles. Apostles. That word comes from the Greek apostolos, which literally means sent ones, especially one who is sent with the authority of another. And there were two parts to the job description of an apostle. The first part to the job description is to come in and be with Jesus. To come in and be with Jesus. Look again at verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. 
the very foundation of what it is to be an apostle, a true follower of Jesus, was to spend time with Jesus, to learn his heart, to learn his mind, to learn how to do what he did, to become like him in every possible way. Why? So that they could fulfill the second responsibility of an apostle, which was to go out and represent Jesus. To go out and represent Jesus. Look again at verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In essence, to do what Jesus did. To preach the gospel and to set spiritual captives free. And wherever they went and whatever they were doing, these 12 men would represent Jesus. They would be his ambassadors. And as such, they would become the foundation upon which the church was built. And I find it just mind-blowing. The very church that we are a part of this day goes back to this foundation that's being laid with the apostles in this very passage. Isn't that awesome? So the job description of an apostle was twofold, to, to come in and be with Jesus and to go out and represent Jesus. And in contrast to the first half of our text, we see that, again, there is a significant difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. Fans are uncommitted. They'll be fickle. Followers are committed. Fans are in it for the miracles. Followers for the message. Fans bail when it gets hard. Followers are in it till the end. Fans are self-centered. Followers are Jesus-centered. Fans expect to be served. Followers are here to serve. Fans seek the gifts. Followers seek the giver of the gifts. Which brings us full circle back to that question. Are you a fan of Jesus? Or are you a follower of Jesus? Now, Let's close it out by taking this one step further application. How should we then live? I've got two main points for you. Again, this isn't rocket science, but um, they're important. First, number one, accept the cutty. I hear, I hear your minds. I know what you're Accept the call of apostleship. And you say, already, I hear, I hear your minds. I know what you're saying. You say, Chad, we're not actually called to be apostles like in the New Testament, are we? And to that I would say yes and no. If we're referring to the original 12 in what I would call apostles with a big A, then I would agree that we are not called to be one of them. They are unique. They're a class unto themselves. They were the foundation upon which the church was built. However, if we go back to that literal definition of apostle with the lowercase a, back to that Greek word, apostolos, sent ones, one who is sent with the authority of another, then we are absolutely called to apostleship. We are called to be more than fans of Jesus. We too, like those apostles with a capital A, are called to be his followers. And as such, we too are meant to be sent ones, sent into the world with his authority and his spirit to be his ambassadors, to preach the good news, and to set spiritual captives free. Our job description isn't really any different. And the place where this begins is to accept 
his call. For you see, the call to apostleship is, first of all, point A, a call to repentance and to faith in Jesus alone for forgiveness. This is where it begins. You can't skip this. It is that invitation of Jesus in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is where becoming a follower of Jesus begins by opening the door and accepting that call of apostleship. But I don't want to be guilty of sugarcoating this call. I don't think Jesus was sugarcoating it with his apostles. This is not a call to some cheap grace prosperity gospel where Jesus promises to make you healthy and wealthy. That is not what Jesus calls us to. This is not about unicorns and rainbows and how your life is just going to be so happy always after Jesus here on this earth. Rather, Jesus said quite the opposite. He was so blunt with his disciples. He said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that verse 25, I don't know about you, American church, but this is convicting because we spend a whole lot of our time trying to save our lives here on this earth, trying to preserve and to protect what we believe is rightfully ours and this life. Jesus says, You're man, that is not what it is to be a follower. Of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this was literally the experience of those original 12 apostles. I don't know if that chart's going to show up very well, but let's put it up there. Yeah. How did the 12 apostles die? We don't know all of this from Scripture, much of it comes from church tradition. Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. James, beheaded. John, died of old age. He's the, the one guy that most likely was not martyred for his faith, but boy, it wasn't easy. Philip, crucified. Bartholomew, skinned alive and beheaded. Matthew, beheaded or stabbed. Thomas, pierced with a spear. James, clubbed to death. Simon, sawn in half. Jude, beheaded or clubbed to death. And Judas committed suicide. Um, yeah. The reality reminds me of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die physically? Well, for those original 12 apostles, yes, it could mean us. Um, if we really are paying attention, we recognize that for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, it literally means physical death. Die to self? Absolutely. That'll be universal. To follow Jesus is a call to die to self, to our selfishness, to our agendas, to our own kingship in our lives. With this in mind, I challenge you, I ask you that question, have you truly accepted the call to apostleship the way that those 12 did? Application point number two. After we accept the call of apostleship by repenting of our sins and crossing the line of faith and understanding truly what we're signing up for, denying ourselves, call of apostleship. And as we, number two, fulfill that call. Fulfill the call of apostleship. And as we saw earlier, there are two parts to the job description of an apostle. First, we must come in and be with him. 
come in and be with him. Because we can't do the second part of this until we do the first part. I feel like that's maybe where we fail a lot. We wonder why. Where, where's the fruit? Where's the, the doing the stuff that Jesus did? Well, you first of all have to spend time with Jesus to learn his heart, to learn his mind, to learn how to do what he did, to become like him in every conceivable way. As such, we need to follow in his footsteps to the mountain, away from the crowds, away from the noise, and to just be in his presence, receiving direction and empowerment. That is the first part of the job description of an apostle in fulfilling the call of apostleship. We come in and be with him. The second part of fulfilling the call is to go out and represent him. To go out and represent him. Again, this is why we're called to apostleship. You are not called to become a believer in Jesus Christ simply so that you can escape the flames of hell. That's good. I want to escape the flames of hell. But that is not the primary reason for which you are called. You are called to apostleship. You are called to a mission. You are called to a work to go out and represent him. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Church, we are the body of Christ, his hands and his feet, and we are his voice. We are called to share the good news of the gospel. Remember our map from earlier where we talked about um, Jesus going viral without social media and without um, a Super Bowl television commercial or whatever? Simply by word of mouth? Simply by people telling others what Jesus had done for them? I don't know, but that gives me great hope. It brings both hope and conviction. It brings me great hope that we can do this. What if we all took that seriously and we just lived such a life of, first of all, experiencing Jesus, and then secondly, simply telling about it? What if every single one of us did that? We can do that. But then again, it brings me conviction because well, why aren't we doing that? Our calling is no different than the man that Jesus delivered from a demon, from many demons in Luke 8. Luke 8, 39, after Jesus had brought spiritual deliverance, this is what Jesus said to him, and this is what he says to us. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Such is the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ versus a fan of Jesus Christ. And so, how should we then live? Number one, accept the call of apostleship, the repentance and faith. Number two, fulfill the call of apostleship. Come in and be with him. That's where the power is. That's where we get equipped to go out and represent him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know many of us at one point prayed a prayer, which is good, we made a decision. We checked a box. But God, your word shows us and tells us time and time and time again that there's a lot more to it. You've called us to do more than to check a box. You've called us to a life of following you, of laying down our lives. 
not seeking to protect them at all costs. Sometimes the way that we live here and the way we cling to the things of this earth, I think that does such a great harm. to Our treasure is not in heaven. Our treasure is here on earth, and people see that. God, would you change our hearts in that regard? May we hold loosely to these lives and to these things and hold tightly to eternal truths. Make us true followers of Jesus Christ and not just enthusiastic admirers. The world needs more than fans. The world needs followers. The world needs apostles who take seriously the call and the fulfillment of it. So God, would you help us to be that kind of church? Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction to my life? Would you bring conviction to each and every one of us in this room? I pray for anyone who is yet to accept that call to apostleship. Perhaps today would be the day that they turn from their sins and turn to you for forgiveness. Make it so, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.